As you well know, it's that time of the year, the time of the year where many are making um, New Year's resolutions. Now some, you might find, get very excited about that. Others get surprisingly bothered by the thought of it. You might fall somewhere in between. Some people love it. They're like, this is a great opportunity for a restart on certain things. And some people don't even want to think about it. They hate the thought of it. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, there is a spectrum. And that's happening for people all over the place. But I do think, I would say, I think there is a place for using January 1st as a day where those who are new creations in Christ Jesus make what I've referenced before to be in a message some years back called New Creations Resolutions. As new creations in Christ, any day of the year, January 1st, March 1st, December 31st, it doesn't matter. Any day of the year could be a day where by the grace of God, you resolve by the grace of God to do certain things. I've told you before about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, he, for instance, penned... 70 resolutions for his life that he purposed to read weekly as long as he lived. He did this at the age of 18. So at the age of 18, he pens 70 resolutions. He purposes to read those resolutions every every week of his life as long as he lived. And I think that there's wisdom in that kind of consideration. Ultimately, that resolutions might be done to the glory of God. But I think there's wisdom in thinking that way. Again, whether it happens on January 1st or some other date. Proverbs 16.9 says that a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord, or Yahweh, directs his steps. So a man's plans are not ultimate. A man's plans are subordinate, subordinate to the sovereign will of the living God. But there is nonetheless prudence in planning one's way. Particularly, particularly if our planning is connected with heeding the opening imperatives of Psalm 37 verse 5. Psalm 37, verse 5 begins by saying, Commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust Him. In other words, commit. That language there in the Hebrew for commit could mean roll. It could mean roll the entire burden of your life, as it were, upon Yahweh. And when it says commit your way to the Lord, again, that's speaking of the entirety of your life. Your way. Whether it be your struggles, whether it be the things you hope to do, the things that you are doing, commit your way to the Lord. That's a resolution that every Christian can resolve regularly. January 1st, January 2nd, January 3rd. That by the grace of God, I want to commit my way to Yahweh. And I want to trust Him. Trust Him. Regardless of where you may fall on the spectrum of interest in personal resolutions on New Year's for the glory of God, Before us is providentially a text that has a blueprint for 2023 for every Christian. You're going to see that. I think it's very interesting in God's providence, gracious of Him, that we would be in this text for this day to begin this year. But before we get into the text, first a little bit of background to the blueprint. It's been a little while since we've been in the epistle of Jude, so so as to create some context, I'll remind you of where we have been. Jude had sounded the alarm, you'll remember. He sounded the alarm because there were certain men who had crept in unawares. They were men who were ungodly men who brought in wrong doctrine. They practiced wrong living. They were divisive. We see these things in the opening verses all the way through verse 19. 
In verse 4, we saw that they brought in erroneous teaching. They denied the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we saw that they practiced licentious living. They turned the grace of God into licentiousness. We go on and we find out other things about them, that they were sensual and so on. In verse 19, we saw that they caused divisions. That's who these people were. So Jude sounds the alarm. He's telling the believers, you have to be careful. I'm urging you, therefore, to contend for the faith. You cannot just let these things go on unchecked. You have to address them and you have to be ready. So what he has done, essentially from verse 3 through verse 19, is he's called the church to contend for the faith, and he has painted a picture of the danger of the apostates, the doom of the apostates, the character of the apostates. Remember when I'm saying apostates, that simply means those who have gone astray. Those who are seemingly, at least visibly, notably, externally on the right path, but then they apostatized. They went the wrong way. They went off of the path that they should have stayed on. So he's called their attention to these things, how they turned the grace of God into a license for sin, verse 4, how he assured them of the apostates' end in verses 5 through 7. He told them how they rejected authority, the apostates, verse 8, how they spoke wickedly, verse 8, how they loved money, verse 11, etc. But now we see as Jude has turned the corner, we saw him initially turn the corner in verse 17. It's as though he's telling Christians that their gaze was not to be continually upon the darkness that they were battling against. There's the old adage that goes, you are what you eat. Well, if you keep ingesting darkness, whether it's the behavior of apostates, or groomers, or murderers, or corrupt bureaucrats, if you keep ingesting that stuff, without a steady diet of that which is pure, noble, and lovely, namely and primarily from the Word of God, your thinking will likely be impacted. And your impact for the kingdom of God will also be impacted. We're not meant to just stay gazing upon the darkness and saying this is wrong and that is wrong. We should know that. There's a place for that. We need to do that. We need to discern what is wrong. It's good to be aware of such things. I know that. But our gaze has to be set upon that which is pure and noble and lovely and praiseworthy, those things that are most ultimately found in God's holy word. So Jude, having turned the corner in verses 17 and 18. Remember, he turned the corner already, because in verse 17, he said, but you, beloved. It's as though he's like, I've been describing the apostates, but now I'm turning my attention towards you. He began to turn the corner, and he told them, but you, beloved. He told them to remember the words of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. How they said, and he unpacks this in verse 18, how they said that in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. He was saying this so that when the Christians saw apostates entering in, creeping in unawares, doing damage, causing divisions, that they wouldn't say, I can't believe that this is happening. But rather they would say, the apostles of the Lord said this would happen. So he's telling them to remember, don't be taken by surprise. God isn't. The apostles wouldn't have been. They told you this is going to happen. But then he mentions the apostates one more time in verse 19. He mentions them, and now all of a sudden we get another transition where he directs the hearts and minds of believers as to how they are to contend for the faith. So the little introduction as to how to contend for the faith, we saw that in verse 17 and 18. Remember the words of the apostles. But now he's going to unpack for them, this is how you contend. He mentioned contending for the faith in verse 3. Now he's going to tell them essentially, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. 
And it begins with a vibrant, growing, prayerful, and forward-looking spiritual life. That's where it begins. It doesn't end there, but it begins there. And we begin in Jude, verses 20 and 21, and that's where we will be this day. And we read, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, having mentioned the apostates, you, go, you flash right back to verse 19, and he said, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. That's verse 19. Now transition, but you, beloved, as though to say you are not them. You are, Christians are, believers are, if you will, the anti-apostates. Instead of being sensual persons, and remember that word sensual there essentially means soulish. People who are more instinct-driven. It's us prior to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Being earthly-minded, being driven by our own instincts. Soulish, as opposed to being spiritually-minded. Well, believers are spiritually-minded. Believers aren't the natural man of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Believers, having been given the Holy Spirit, are spiritually-minded. Believers are also, unlike those who cause divisions... Verse 19, the apostates, believers are to endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, we see the Apostle Paul unpack that more there in the surrounding context. And unlike those who are apostates not having the Spirit, believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember the scripture says in Romans 8 that if any man does not have the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to God. Believers have the Spirit. Now also, I want you to notice that Jude's instruction here in verses 20 and 21, it's particularly positive. Positive in the sense that now Jude is not saying what the apostates are doing wrong. He's done that. He said, this is their character. This is what they do. This is how they behave. But now it's particularly positive instruction. This is what you are to do. Namely, you are to be active in doing those things that build up yourselves, individually, corporately, in your most holy faith. I think there is an important practical lesson in that. I've already mentioned it, but I'll mention it again briefly. Spiritual growth is not meant to come via a steady diet of observing opposition to the truth. That's not how spiritual growth is meant to come. Doubtless one can grow from seeing how error is erroneous through the application of truth, but it's not to be, if you will, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner of the believer. It's not meant to be um, the meat and potatoes or for my wife, the kale and carrots of the Christian life. It's a helpful supplement to know those things. You want to know those things, but it's not the main diet that you are to have as a believer. Two other things briefly before we get into the text uh, and unpacking it verse by verse. You'll notice if you look at our text, there's one particular imperative here. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Some commentators have said, and I think with, um, with good arguments behind it, When you see three participles in these verses in 20 and 21, you see building yourselves, praying in the Holy Spirit, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those participles are unpacking how you keep the imperative. So you got one imperative, keep yourselves in the love of God. You say, how do you do that? Most immediately within Jude's epistle anyway, you do it by doing these things. I think there's a good argument for that. But we'll unpack it even uh, further when we get there. And I also want to call your attention to a precious thing to observe. Anytime we get to see Trinitarian truths in the scriptures, I love calling attention to it. You have another text before you right here. 
that calls attention to the reality of the Trinity. It's implicit, but it's nonetheless here. Notice, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, now, besides the verses in the Scripture that call attention to the deity of each person of the Trinity, remember, there's one God who's one in essence and exists in three distinct persons. So you can go through the Scriptures and you see very clearly that the Father is identified as God. You see that very clearly. You look at the Scriptures, you see Jesus identified as God. You see that very clearly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. John or Thomas looked at Jesus. It's recorded in the Gospel of John. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God, speaking to Jesus. You look in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, quoting Psalm 45, and you see that the Father calls the Son God. And there are an abundance of other witnesses to the deity of Christ. You see witnesses to the Holy Spirit in the Scripture as well. You look at Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, and you see that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to not lie to men, but to lie to God. You're, you yourselves are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. But then there are implicit references like this, where you see the three persons mentioned together. I think of the baptismal formula that Jesus prescribed for his disciples, that they were to go, Matthew 28, 19, and they were to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, a witness to the Trinity. You look in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. It's the end of Paul's letter, second letter uh, to the Corinthians, as it's regarded in our scriptures, and he ends that with a Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then you have verses like what we see here in Jude and it's yet another witness to the reality that the God that you worship is one in essence. There's only one God. But he has eternally existed in three persons. The Father who is unbegotten. The Son who is eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, now let's get to the instruction. The instruction that is, I think, implicit in the participles. Um, so first, Jude wrote that believers are to be building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now, the implication is, as one commentator noted, that to build on means to build on a foundation or existing structure. To say that the foundation has already been laid. It had already been laid objectively. We look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, and we're told that there is no other foundation that can be laid other than Jesus Christ. The Scripture has no problem with mixing metaphors. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, we find that the apostles and prophets, New Testament prophets, are the foundation of the New Testament church, with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So that foundation has already been laid, but here you might say the metaphor of building is personalized. A believer is to be building upon their holy faith, a faith that is centered upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the common salvation that believers share, share in Him, as well as apostolic instruction and biblical truth. Now, if you were to say, how does a believer do that? Like, how does a believer actually build themselves up in their most holy faith? Well, I want you to see, we're going to look at this text, and we're going to resist the temptation to just personalize and privatize this. 
Because what can happen, especially in our Western mindset, is we just see this text as something we personalize and have to do individually. And while it is something we have to do individually, it is something that is to be practiced corporately. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith is not just a personal endeavor. It is, but it's not just that. First, if we are to do that, I think we draw from the Apostle Paul when in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, he said, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. So we say, how is a believer to be building himself or herself up in their most holy faith? Well, I think the Apostle Paul gives us a clue in Acts 20, verse 32. I commend you, I commit you essentially to the word of God, which is able, the word of His grace is able to build you up. I would say, imagine when you're reading the Word of God, when you're ingesting the Word of God, it's as though metaphoric builders go to work in you. Remember some uh, some time back, I used to love a uh, restaurant makeover show. And you know those shows where they show up, and oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes the place that they would show up, or the restaurant they would show up to, was a place that was run down, somewhat dingy, not well kept. And then they would go in there and talk to the the person who was in charge of it or the people that were in charge of it, but then they would get ready to do a makeover. They would get ready to renovate the place. And what they would do is essentially have people who were there helping get everything out, and then there would be a part of the episode where a whole bunch of workers would just go in. You would just see them going in, and they begin tearing down what needed to be torn down. They begin to work on building up what needed to be built up. I would encourage you, when you read the Word of God, to have that kind of imagery in your mind. Because the Word of God is able to build you up. It's as though when you read the Word of God, it goes to work in you. It starts tearing down wrong ways of thinking. Things that might lead to anxiety. Things that might lead to fear. Things that might lead to frustration or anger or lust. Whatever it might be. The Word of God gets in you and the Word of God just begins to work. It tears down what needs to be torn down, but it doesn't only do that. It does that so that it could begin to build up what needs to be built up. Greater confidence in the Lord, great understanding of His will, great understanding of who He is, great understanding of who we are to one another, great understanding of our work and mission in this world. So when the Word of God gets in you, it's as though a renovation process is happening. There are things that are being torn down, but ultimately for the purpose of building up the edifice or the structure, the superstructure of spiritual understanding. That's what's happening. The Word of God is able to build you up. As the Word of God gets in, It goes to work, renovating the interior of a person, ultimately begetting a spiritual makeover. And you you just begin to unpack this more and more, and you think about how this happens. All of a sudden, the Word of God renews a person's mind. They begin to think differently, and they start to add the things that Peter says to add in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8. Remember, Peter said that we are to add to our faith certain things. Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness and love. So it starts with the renewing of your mind, and as your mind is renewed, as the Word of God is building you up, certain things are going to change, certain things are going to be added to your character, things like that. So don't make the mistake of thinking that growth comes apart from thinking and understanding. As Thomas Schreiner noted, affection for God increases not through bypassing the mind, but by means of it. But by means of it. 
Furthermore, think of the context. Think of why this would be so important given the context of Jude. Jude is dealing with apostasy that's entered the church, false teaching that's entered the church. So as believers are building themselves up via the word of God, growing in spiritual understanding, that growth and understanding becomes an increasing protectant against false teaching and bad doctrine. Because the more that you grow in understanding, the more you can discern lies when you hear lies. One pastor that I had read, he shared an example of, on how he said on good authority, he was told that those in the Mormon church uh, target a specific evangelical group. He didn't say which group it was. Um, he said he's, they target a specific evangelical group because they have zeal for evangelism, but they have a shallow understanding of doctrine. So it's as though they're perceiving a lack of understanding to the degree that this is true. This is a, um, an anecdote or story that he shared, but to the degree that it's true, it shows how they perceive people to be more vulnerable with the limited understanding based on the understanding that they have. And if it's limited, they are more vulnerable. And the principle, I think, is true. Therefore, believers are to be building themselves up in their most holy faith individually. But again, don't simply individualize the pursuit. This is something that we're meant to do in regards to one another. We're to pursue the building up of one another. I think that's part of a proper application of this. Building yourselves up is not just a private pursuit. Growth in the church happens, to use language from Ephesians 4.16, as, quote, every part does its share, which you could say, and Paul goes on, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love, for the building of itself in love. How else does growth happen? You look a little bit later on in Ephesians 4. Growth happens as we speak words that are, quote, good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear, Ephesians 4, 29. So as we speak words of grace, timely words to one another, we could be used by God to help build up believers. We are told in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, that we are to edify one another, build up one another, We are to pursue things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 14, 19. We know that while knowledge can puff up, love what? Edifies. Love builds up. So as we love one another, that builds uh, builds each other up. Any pursuit in excelling in spiritual gifts ought to be for the edification of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. So you think about that. As we serve one another, as we love one another, as we speak words of grace to one another, as we do these things, we are in effect building up one another. So when you see this instruction, don't just simply think of it as, I have to read my Bible more. That is a great and excellent application of this text, 100%. But don't limit it there. Speak words of grace to one another. Love one another. Serve one another. And as we do that, we are by God's grace being used to build up ourselves together into that holy temple that we are meant to be. Thanks be to God. Just by way of encouragement too, whether it's personally or whether it's corporately, this building process doesn't take 24 hours or 48 hours. It's a lifelong building process, right? You're not going to go home and build yourself up and the edifice of you will be complete. You are ready for the Lord to return. You don't even need a glorified body. You've gotten as close to it as you need to be. No, you cannot do that. It's a lifelong process. We're going to continue to do this throughout the entirety of our lives. And it's hard work. Alexander McLaren had an excellent, uh, excellent sermon on the word edify. And uh, a portion of it that I thought to read to you all um, 
was this. He said, you cannot build up a house in half an hour. You cannot do it, as the old fable told us that Orpheus did, by music or by wishing. There must be dogged, hard, continuous, lifelong effort if there is to be this building up. He goes on and he says, No man makes a character at a flash. The stones are actions. The mortar is that mystical, awful thing, habit. And deeds cemented together by custom rise into that stately dwelling place in which God abides. So there is to be a lifelong work in character, gradually rearing into his likeness. So a great resolution for January 1st or any day of the year is to say, by God's grace, I want to be applying Jude verse 20. I want to build myself up personally, growing in understanding in the word of God. And I want to be committed to building up my brethren corporately. What a great application. That is a resolution that we all should, by the grace of God, regularly resolve to because it's in the scriptures. Well, now we get to the second implied imperative. The second participle, I think, of implied imperative is believers are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, unlike some commentators, uh, I don't think this refers to um, praying in tongues. And I say that for two reasons. Two reasons predominantly. Even in the first century, it was clear and understood that not all believers had that gift. You look in the first century text, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30, and it was clear. Do all speak in tongues? No. Yet this is an imperative for all believers. For all believers. You're going to see the language is very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 6.18 as well, where there is no reference to speaking of tongues there. So doubtless, that could have had immediate application in that way, but I don't think that's what is meant here. Second, and this is, I think, worth noting for all of us as well, there are many instructions in the Scriptures as to what believers are to do in the Spirit. So many. We are to walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Like, live in the Spirit. Which is what Paul says a little bit later on, in verse 25. He says in Galatians 5, 25, that we are to live in the Spirit. We are to be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. That's that Ephesians 6.18 text, very similar to Jude. We are to be, and I'll read it again, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The context there is spiritual warfare. doesn't include references to speaking in tongues there. We are to worship God in spirit. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. So what does Jude mean then when he says pray in the Spirit? Praying in the Spirit. I think the idea is very clear that we are to be praying under the influence and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Just as we are to live in the Spirit under the guidance of, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Even as we are to rejoice and worship God in the Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit, we are to pray in the Holy Spirit, guided by Him externally through the Word that He has inspired. Remember, this text is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we are to read the text and have it guide us as we pray, and we are led from the inside out as He applies that Word to our hearts, as He works in us both to will and to do the good pleasure of God. So if you are praying in the Holy Spirit, you are praying in accordance with the will of God as much as you know, looking at the text of Scripture, guided by the lamp of God's Word, and you're compelled by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. He may be bearing witness with your spirit in that moment afresh as he already has that you are a son or daughter of God. He may be impressing certain truths on your heart and illuminating your heart and mind and so on. I think that's what Jude has in mind here. But again, 
let us not just individualize this pursuit. This is something we are to be doing. Great resolution for every Christian. Going back to 2012, I remember writing a devotional about New Year's resolutions. And one of the things on it was to resolve to read the Bible daily. Uh, Number two, if I remember correctly, was think about what you read. And number three was resolve to pray for at least 15 minutes a day. Now, you don't have to, the scripture doesn't say give you a time frame or something like that. But you should, by the grace of God, see this as a fresh opportunity to say, this is what God expects of me that I am to be praying under the influence, under the direction of the Holy Spirit. I want to resolve by the grace of God to do this, God helping me. Can't do it in my own frame. Can't do it in my own frame. Our, Our frame is so weak to kind of draw from an idea that Calvin included in his commentary. Our frame is so weak. We are so just, just so sinful in our fallen frames that we can't do this apart from the Holy Spirit. We need to be so ministered to by the Holy Spirit that indwells us so that we might do this. But don't just individualize this pursuit. Think of what happens when believers pray together. I think early on in my Christian life, coinciding with reading the Scriptures, I think I learned maybe as much text by way of memorization from being at the prayer meeting that I attended on Wednesday nights where my cousin Jason was leading a prayer meeting, a Bible study followed by prayer, and just listening to the prayers that were prayed and the scriptures that were being quoted. I feel like before I even knew where certain scriptures were, I heard them quoted. And then I, by the grace of God, would hear them enough and say, okay, you know what, if that's true, that's in the word of God, I'm going to quote that to God. There's so much edification that can happen when you're around other believers praying. Think, if love edifies, when you're around believers and you see believers loving people within the church and praying for them, you see believers loving people that they've never met, praying for whether it's elderly people or babies or somewhere in between, but praying for these people regularly that they never met, you're edified. You're seeing the compassion of God on display through the people of God. Think of the edification that happens as we pray in the Spirit, not only individually, but as we pray together corporately. This text has fired me up for corporate prayer in such a fresh way, in so many ways in which we could be. Um, edified in that context. Self-control is exercised as one believer listens to another and comes in agreement and edification happens. You get to be edified as you hear somebody else's enjoyment of God, trust in God, dependence upon God. So much. So much. By the grace of God, uh, such things help us to have uh, fires of affection stay hot instead of lukewarm where there is corporate sharpening, stirring, encouraging that happens as believers gather together to pray in the Spirit. Now before we move on from this, this statement, as I was meditating on this early, um, early Saturday morning, I was thinking of, Lord, I was asking the Lord essentially, what could I kind of bring to kind of throw logs onto the fires of your affection for prayer? And so I'm thinking and I'm meditating on this, and certain things um, came to mind. I was scrounging around for whatever I could find. I remember during um, Christmas, I was talking with um, Lauren's uncle, Dominic, and he used to own a restaurant, and we were talking about the garbage pie. Some of you might be familiar with the garbage pie, uh, that pie where they'd basically, in the restaurant, throw everything on it. Throw the sausage, throw the pepperonis, throw the peppers, throw mushrooms, just throw it all on. And basically what I kind of did in my mind was try to basically think of anything I could grab, look for whatever I could grab to kind of throw on a proverbial pie to present to you so that you might be edified and encouraged in prayer. So I thought of what I could think of Saturday morning, and I tried to add to it a little bit last night. And here are some of the things I will encourage you with. 
to encourage you in prayer. First, I think of this. I think this, is, for me, is one of the most encouraging things about um, praying. God delights in the prayers of his people. Proverbs 15.8 talks about the sacrifice of the wicked being an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So I have an opportunity to delight the God who exists outside of time, who knows everything that ever will happen, knows it infinitely, yet in this relational way, he delights in my prayers when I pray. And we know this. We know this. You know what it's like, right? When you've ever seen the smile on my face or a dad's face or a mom's face when a little child comes and says anything, right? I know when Zachary and Thea come to me and they say just words, I'm like, this is awesome. Praise God. And are we to think that our compassion and our love exceeds the Creator? I mean, the whole idea of fatherhood is rooted in the identity of who God is. He's eternally been a father. He wants to hear you. It's a delight to him. Oh, that motivates me to pray. That motivates me to pray. Number two, um, God loves to hear the voice of his people so much that he tells them to pray without ceasing. You think of his instruction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, right? We are to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and all things give thanks. Right there in the middle sandwich is pray without ceasing. Look, no matter how much you love somebody, if they keep talking to you nonstop, at some point you're going to be like, all right, I can't. I need a break. But the Lord, pray without ceasing. Talk to me all day. I could bear it. I, I, I want it. Bring it on. I think that encourages me to pray as well. Now, I haven't dove into this, but it just caught my attention. As we're going through Revelation as a family uh, during our evening devotionals, it just caught my attention. I, just, I, I give it to you by way of observation because I haven't dove into the dynamics of this. But I thought it was rather interesting that the prayers of God's people are depicted as being uh, golden bowls full of incense in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5.8. Golden bowls. Now, you, you, you don't put something that's not precious in golden bowls. At least I don't think so. This speaks, I think, to the preciousness of God's people. Don't forget, we're told in the book of James that the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. It's not just an exercise for personal spiritual growth. It actually is used by God to accomplish things. And maybe, maybe one of the best examples I could give you of this would be the example of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was on the brink of being on the wrong end of Assyrian conquest. Sennacherib is at the door. They are threatening the people of Judah. The game is about to be over. But Hezekiah prayed. And God had it written in his word. Isaiah 37 verse 21. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria. He says a lot after that. I'm just going to tell you one statement he says after that. Because you prayed to me, I will defend this city to save it. Did God purpose that from before the foundation of the world? Yes. But his means in time was the prayer of Hezekiah. Oh, how your prayers might be used not to change God's eternal plan. He knows his eternal plan. But to change the course of history as we know it. Such was the case with Hezekiah. The Assyrians didn't shoot an arrow. As a matter of fact, the angel of the Lord was dispatched. The angel of the Lord went out, and he killed 185,000 Assyrians in the camp of the Assyrians. Sennacherib woke up in the morning. He saw it. He went back home to Nineveh. He worshipped his false god, Nisroch, to no avail. 
He was murdered by his sons on that very occasion. The Assyrians didn't raise an arrow. The men of Judah didn't raise a sword. God fought the battle on behalf of a man who, by the grace of God, prayed. Prayed. And then there are stories of revival. And I just conclude with this. One more motivation to be praying in the Holy Spirit. You could look for stories of revival. I saw a video about the businessman's um, prayer revival. I read an article about the businessman's revival. Without going into detail, some of you who are familiar with the history of revivals, that might ring a bell to you. Just to give you a little bit of a synopsis that doesn't do justice to all the dynamics of the story would be something like this. In uh, September of 1857, there was a lay person. Uh, One article I read said that this man was a lay missionary by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear, and he started a lunch prayer meeting. He did this in where? In lower Manhattan, right in our home state of New York and in lower Manhattan. One account said that after passing out flyers for weeks, maybe it was months, I don't remember exactly, but he's passing out flyers for this prayer meeting, and then um, not many people attended. One account I um, came across said six men attended, but then shortly thereafter, the stock market crashed. So many families, thousands plus, lost what they had had, but then week after week, the attendance at the prayer meeting began to grow. One video said that by December, the six men had become 10,000. And they were not meeting weekly, but they were meeting daily. Revival then began to happen in other places as well in the United States. Awesome stories about what was happening in different places. There are stories of people packing out churches multiple times a day to pray. Pastors baptizing large numbers of people on a weekly basis. One account said 20,000 people per week. It would become eventually, at least to some degree, a global revival. And where did it begin? Where did it begin? It began with prayer. With prayer. So, brethren, be building yourselves up individually and corporately in your most holy faith. Be praying in the Holy Spirit. And those are some additional motivations to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Well, now we come to uh, verse 21 where we are told, here's the imperative, keep yourselves in the love of God. And then that last participle here, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now first, let's just briefly establish what's not going on at the beginning of verse 21. When you read, keep yourselves in the love of God, this does not mean that you are to keep yourselves loved by God. A believer has been loved by God before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, in love he predestined us. So, you know, in due time, we know Paul would speak about Romans, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So God loved us before the foundation of the world. God knew our ungodliness, yet sent his son to die for us despite our ungodliness. So this does not mean, let's just make it very clear, this does not mean that believers are to keep themselves loved by God. As a matter of fact, in the context of this epistle, the beginning of this epistle, remember, according to a manuscript reading that we discussed in verse 1, believers are beloved of God, beloved by God, and kept, preserved by, and for Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see in verse 24, when we get there, Lord willing, next week, that God is able to keep his people as well. So then the question becomes, okay, The imperative here, keep yourselves in the love of God. If it doesn't mean, hey, just make sure you're obedient enough to make sure that God keeps loving you because if you're not obedient enough, God is not going to keep loving you, then what exactly does it mean? Well, I think it's very similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 
9 and 10, and I'll get there in a moment. But I think the idea of this is clear within the context of Jude. As one commentator said, this principle imperative is a powerful call to flee from apostasy. To flee from apostasy. So you had people who were drifting. Remember, to apostatize means to go off track. Like, like you're walking visibly on the right path, but then all of a sudden you veer off. So believers are to not do that. Because what happens when they veer off? Well, when they veer off, they are in a state of apostasy. They evidence themselves to be outside of a state of grace. And just because God keeps us doesn't mean that we should not be diligent in making sure that we keep ourselves. That we keep ourselves in the light, if you will, in the sphere of, as some have regarded it, of God's love. And I think that's the idea of what's going on here. Just because God keeps us ultimately doesn't mean that we are not to guard our hearts and minds practically. You might say, then why, then why even issue such commands? If God is going to keep his people, why does God tell his people to keep themselves in the love of God? Like, why even issue such a command? He could say that about the gospel. If God's going to bring his people to repent and believe, why should they even be commanded to repent and believe? And the answer is that the imperatives of God carry with them life-giving power to bring a soul out of darkness into light and to help those who have already come to light to do what God has called them to do and continue walking in the light. The imperatives of God are the means through which he continues to urge his people, usher his people in the path of obedience. So, I think the idea is some have regarded it, live in harmony with God's love, stay within the sphere of God's love. So God keeps his people, that is sure, but God's people also bear responsibility to keep themselves in the love of God. A believer will not apostatize due to God's sovereign grace, and yet that reality does not negate the believer's responsibility to abide in God's love. Keeping yourselves in the love of God is essentially akin to keeping God's commandments. It's the opposite of apostasy. It's obedience. It's staying on the course of light. Jesus told his disciples, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Well, Jesus is loved by the Father for all of eternity. But yet, in the outworking of who he was, he continued to abide in that love. And in like manner for us, the people of God, though in a distinct relationship to God from the eternally begotten Son, we are loved by God from eternity past, if you will. And we are to work out that love as we remain in that love by walking in the path of light, walking in the path of his commandments. Will is to be exerted. Strength is to be exerted to stay in that place. And finally, we're told that we are to be looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now this, um, I think, and it's pretty much the consensus, that this has an eschatological bent to it. That when Judas is talking about looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, he's essentially talking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are to be expectantly looking for the return and the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the word that's here rendered as looking, it's a Greek word that carries the connotation of waiting expectantly for. Joseph of Arimathea was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God 
Now Mark chapter 15, verse 43, Simeon was waiting and longing for the consolation of Israel, and in like manner, believers are to be waiting and looking for the culmination of a Christian salvation. That moment when Jesus returns and believers get their glorified bodies. So here Jude hones in on a specific aspect of Jesus' return. Mercy, mercy, that will be displayed on that day. Well, how are believers going to be on the receiving end of mercy on that day? Well, believers enjoy mercy in the present. Jude knew that. That's why in verse 2 he said, for mercy, among other things, to be multiplied to the people of God. Believers enjoy mercy in the present, yet there is more mercy to be realized. Think about when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, it will be a day of judgment, yet it will be a day of mercy. Those who are in Christ will not be judged on that day because the mercy of God. And that mercy will be realized and manifested yet even again. Those outside of the gospel who have spurned the grace of God in Jesus Christ and have said, I don't think he's the only way. I think there are other ways in which I could be forgiven. I don't believe he was the son of God. Those who have rejected the gospel and rejected his son will receive holy and righteous, and right, divine justice. Believers, however, having received mercy unto salvation, will receive mercy on that day, and they will not be judged for their sins. Rather, having received eternal life, they will, at Christ's return, receive mercy, and the culmination of their salvation unto eternal life, speaking of particularly the glorified bodies that they will have. The present evil age is over, the new age begins, and each believer has their glorified bodies on that day. So application, what does that actually mean for us then if we were to be looking for that day? There is a sense in which you and I are to be sitting on suitcases. There's a sense in which we are to live our lives in this world so thankful for the blessings that God gives us, but every day should be a day in which we look expectantly waiting for Jesus Christ to return. That's a resolution by the grace of God we ought to resolve as well. If we cease sitting on suitcases and we plant our stakes so deeply in the soil of this world, we may not long for Christ's return. We may end up feeling more comfortable in this world as though it were our home, when ultimately it is not our home. All of a sudden the fires of affection for Christ can begin to dwindle. We are to be like those that Paul described who are loving his appearing. Right, just waiting for it, loving the thought of it. Where even if we're longing for something, whatever it might be, right? Whatever it may be, whether it's waiting for a wedding day, right? Or waiting for something amazing to happen, or you know, uh, the, the birth of another grandchild, whatever it might be, we say, God, these are blessings. And to whatever degree you would have me enjoy such blessings in this life, I am so thankful for them. But I want you to know above all, Above all, and tune my heart so that this is truly uh, an expression of my affection. I long for above all seeing your son return. I want to long expectantly for that day. Such a state of mind, when we get into that state of mind, it brings with it practical benefits as well. When you think about Jesus coming and you think about the glorified body you're, gonna, you're going to get when he returns, the scripture says everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So it's not just that you're thinking of a thing that doesn't actually bring with it practical benefits. It does bring practical benefits. You live in a greater state of readiness. You're more averse to that which might soil you spiritually. 
and you want to live more purely. Well, closing thoughts. Um, closing thoughts. By way of a kind of a, a New Year's blueprint, if you will, I think verses 20 and 21, verses 22 and 23 as well, kind of lay out for us what we, by the grace of God, should be resolving to do regularly. So I close by just reminding you of something. I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to take inventory of this next week, but I want you to actually feel a good sense of accountability for this. Lord willing, at the beginning of next week's message, unless I forget, and that would be really sad if I forget to do this, but Lord willing, at the beginning of next week's message, I am going to ask you, I'm going to apply it to myself as well, how did we do this week with, by the grace of God, building ourselves up in our most holy faith? Not only personally, but corporately. How did we do with that? How did we do this week with praying in the Holy Spirit? How did we do with looking expectantly for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you wanted to have, not in a legalistic way, but in a kind of practical kind of way, a checkbox for your mind this week, a checkbox for your heart, every day, beginning with today, you say, I am going to be, by the grace of God, building myself up in my holy faith, growing in understanding and seeking to build, seeking to build up Christians. Each day I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray each day this week. Whether it's for a few minutes or whether it's for many minutes, whatever it is, I'm going to pray in the Holy Spirit. And every day I'm going to be intentional to long for, to wait for, to look for the return of Jesus Christ. I will ask you, at the beginning of next week, how you did with that. Um, I'm not putting anybody on the spot. Don't worry. But it's good to think that way. I look forward to that uh, for all of us. Um, I want you to see here, though, this isn't the end-all and be-all of the blueprint. Because this is kind of the inward the inward-looking, personally, but within the corporate uh, setting of the church, you're going to see in verses 22 and 23, it's not just about you personally or even those who love Christ and are walking with Him in the light. There is an outreach that is to take place. And we're going to see that in verses 22 and 23. Most immediately, those who have been affected by apostate teachers, those who have been affected, there is to be loving, compassionate, merciful outreach towards such ones. So the blueprint doesn't end with verse 21, if you will. It continues in verses 22 and 23, and I think it continues in verse 24 and 25 as well. And the last thing I'll say by way of a kind of closing gospel call, on this New Year's uh, Day, I want to just say to anyone who might be in this place, who's outside of Christ, this New Year can start with new life. This new year can start with new life. Some of you might remember that New Year's Eve song that gets sung. And maybe you, like me, just, you just never really knew the words of it. Even the opening words of the song, you're like, what does that say? Should all the quaintance, who are the quaintance? Should it be forgotten? Or maybe you're better than I was, and you're like, oh, no, George, it doesn't say quaintance. There's no such word as acquaintance. It says acquaintances. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Now, I'm not an expert on that song. Uh, from what I understand about that song, it has Scottish roots. And it's kind of a song in which you kind of look back, in which people have looked back and said, you know, I've had dear friends who have been with me not only this past year, but in years past. And with them, I joyfully look to the future and so on. Some, something like that. And I just want to encourage you, if you begin this new year without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you lack the one friend that is the necessary friend that you need for eternal life. Jesus told his disciples no greater love has any man than this than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he told them that he no longer calls them servants. I call you friends. 
he laid his life down. And they'd be more than friends. They'd be brothers forever, children of God forever. And when you come to that one, all of your old sins are forgotten. All of your present sins and future sins forgiven and forgotten by the God who in the new covenant says, I will remember your iniquities no more. What a way to begin the new year with a clean slate, not only from the past, but from the present and the future. All sins forgiven. God is that gracious that when a person comes to Jesus Christ and says, I believe he's the son of God. He died for my sins. In that moment when by the grace of God, they believe the word of God, that Jesus is the son of God who died for their sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures when they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. In that moment, new life happens, forgiveness happens, and all of a sudden they are reconciled to God forever. Old sins forever forgotten by the God who knows everything infinitely and comprehensively. (laughs) So amazing. To reject such mercy is to ensure a future of divine righteous judgment that no one should look forward to. It's a future to be dreaded. But to receive such mercy is to receive eternal life and with it comes a future worth anticipating where there is joy everlasting. You may say, I don't know what 2023 holds, but I know what forever holds. (laughs) And I know who holds forever. And I know that the one who's holding forever holds me. Thanks be to God. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we ask, Heavenly Father, that you might so work in us that by your grace, joyfully compelled by the Holy Spirit, that you might find us this week with a growing desire to undertake that glorious building process, Lord. That building process that ultimately we know you are doing through your word and by your spirit, Lord. Thank you for the word of God which is able to build us up. And we pray, Lord, whether it's the exposition of your text in this moment, whether it's the private reading we will do during the week, whether it's the fellowship and the the shared encouragement that will happen after the service and during the week, we pray that you might find us building ourselves up individually and corporately. We ask, Father, that we might be drawn to that place of prayer, praying under the guidance, under the influence, under the direction of your Holy Spirit, Lord, with such great motivations as bringing delight to your infinite mind, Lord. What an amazing thought, being used by you, Heavenly Father, to pray prayers that will accomplish much and so on. And Father, help us not to be so tethered to the present that we forget the future, Lord that we might look to the return of our Lord and Savior, to the great mercy that will be demonstrated on that day unto eternal life in its manifest culmination, Lord. Oh, Father, may we long for that, Lord. And may our longing for that moment in the future impact the way we live in the present. And Father, if there'd be anyone here outside of that state of grace in the gospel, Lord, might this new year, Heavenly Father, be uh, the beginning for them of a new life in Christ, in a moment, being made a new creation as they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that you raised him from the dead. What a glorious day, Lord. What a day to be among your people, to celebrate your grace, to hear your word. Thank you, Lord. Work in us. May the word that we have studied work in us, Lord. Tearing down what needs to be torn down, building up what needs to be built up, all to the glory of your name. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.